Good morning, everyone, and welcome to AJ's Crime Stories, and we're going to review Chapter 11, and then we'll just delve right into Chapter 12. So in Chapter 11, we started off with uh, John Ferrier coming home with two people sitting in his living room, which just blows my mind. Basically reminding John that the clock is ticking and Lucy would be expected to be given to one of the elder sons, Geber and Stangerson, very soon. John Ferrer throws them out of the house, but ready to shoot them. And then Lucy grabs a hold of him and calms him down. So he's not a happy fella. They receive their daily reminders of how many days are left before John and Lucy relent to the church. In the house and on the gate written on the walls. Second last day, the number two is painted on the outside wall of the house. And then next day, his time was up. He's at the end. He's considering death than to relent to the demands of the Mormon church. And then in the end of the, near the end of the chapter, Jefferson Hope finally gets there, crawling on the ground to avoid detection. And then they would decide to wait for an opportunity to escape that night. And then Jefferson Hope had horses in place waiting for them. Then they get sneak by the last sentinel. And uh, with John Ferrier knowing the language of the church, when asked who gave the all clear to travel, he said the holy four, which was good enough. And then he yelled out the, the sign nine to seven. And Jefferson remembered the response and replied back, um, seven to five, and then they're on their way. They left through the rough part of the valley and rode off into freedom. So they escaped the, the grasp of the Mormon church. Let's see what happens. Chapter 12, The Avenging Angels. All night long, their course lay through intricate landmarks that left behind by previous travelers over irregular and rock-strewn paths. More than once, they lost their way, but Jefferson's intimate knowledge of the mountains enabled them to gain track once more. When morning broke, a scene of marvelous, though savage beauty lay before them. In every direction, the great snow-capped peaks hemmed them in, peeping over one's shoulders to the, to the far horizon. So steep were the rocky banks on either side of them that the larch and the pines seemed to be suspended over their heads, and to not, and to need only a gusty wind to come hurtling down upon them. Nor was the fear of entirely an illusion. Boulders which had fallen in a similar manner, even as they passed a great rock, came thundering down with a horse rattle which woke the echoes in the silent gorges, and startled the, we the weary horses into a, into a gallop. As the sun rose slowly above the eastern horizon, the caps of the great mountains lighted up one after another, like lamps at a festival, until they were all ruddy and glowing. The magnificent spectacle cheered the hearts of the three fugitives and gave them fresh energy. I don't know why we'd call them fugitives, they didn't do anything wrong, but we'll see. At a wild torrent which swept out of the ravine, they called a halt and watered their horses, while they partook of a hasty breakfast 
Lucy and her father would gladly have rested longer, but Jefferson Hope was adamant that they keep on trucking. They'll be upon our crack, on our track by this time, he said. Everything depends on our speed. Once we're safe in Carson, we may rest for the re remainder of our lives. So he knows that they're chasing him. During the whole day, they struggled on through the defiles, and by evening they calculated that they were over 30 miles from the enemies. At night, they chose the base of a beetling crag, where the rocks offered some protection and chill, and chill wind, and from the chill wind. And there, huddled together for warmth, they enjoyed a few hours' sleep. Before daybreak, however, they were up on their way once more. They had seen no signs of any pursuers, and Jefferson Hope began to think that they were fairly out of the reach of the terrible organization whose hostility they had incurred. He little knew how far the iron grasp could reach or how soon it was to close upon them and crush them. About the middle of the second day of their flight, their scanty store of provision began to run out. This gave the hunter little, little uneasiness, for there was gain to be had among the mountains, and he had frequently before he had to depend upon his rifle for needs of life. Choosing a sheltered nook, he piled together a few dry branches and made a blazing fire, and I wish his companions might warn themselves, for they're now nearly 5,000 feet above sea level, and the air was bitter and keen. Having tethered the horses and bid Lucy adieu, he threw his gun over his shoulder and set out in search of whatever chance he might throw his way. Looking back, he saw the old man, young girl, crouching over the blazing fire, while the three animals stood motionless in the background. Then the intervening rocks hid them from his view. He walked for a couple of miles through one ravine after another without success. Though from the marks upon the bark of the trees and other indications, he judged that there were numerous bears in the vicinity. At last, after two or three hours of fruitless search, he was thinking of turning back in despair when, casting his eyes upward, he saw the sight which sent a thrill of pleasure through his heart. On the edge of a jutting pinnacle, three or four hundred feet above him, there stood a creature somewhat resembling a sheep in appearance but armed with a pair of gigantic horns. The big horn, for it is so called, was acting probably as a guardian over their flock, which were invisible to the hunter. But fortunately he was heading in the opposite direction and had not perceived him. Lying on his back, he rested his rifle on the rock and took a long, steady aim before drawing the trigger. The animal sprang into the air, tottered for a moment upon the edge of the precipice, and then came crashing down into the valley beneath. The creature was too unwieldy to lift, so the hunter contented himself with cutting away one haunch part of the flank. With this trophy over his shoulder, he hastened to retrace his steps, for the evening was already drawing in. He had hardly started, however, before he realized the difficulty which faced him. In his eagerness, he had wandered far past the ravines which were known to him, and it was no easy matter to pick out the path which he had taken. The valley which he had found himself divided and subdivided into many gorges which were so like one another that it was impossible to distinguish one from another. He followed one more mile or more until he came to the mountain torrent, which... Let me just start over with that. He followed one more, one for a mile or more, until he came to a mountain torrent, which he was sure that he had never seen before. Convinced that he had taken the wrong turn, he tried another, but with the same result. Night was coming on rapidly, and it was almost dark, for he found himself in the file which was familiar to him. So he finally found a little spot he recognized. 
Even then, it was no easy matter to keep to the right track, for the moon had not yet risen, and the high cliffs on the other side made the obscurity more profound. Weighed down with his burden and weary from his exertions, he stumbled along, keeping up his heart by the reflection that every step brought him nearer to Lucy, and that he carried with him enough to ensure them food and for the remainder of the journey. He now came to the mouth of the very defile in which she had left them. Even in the darkness he could recognize the outlines and the cliffs which bounded it. They must, have reflected, be awaiting him anxiously, for he had been absent for nearly five hours. This could be a very long time in that situation. In the gladness of his heart, he put his hands to his mouth and made the glen re-echo to a loud hello as a signal that he was coming. He paused to listen for an answer. None came save his own cry. His own echo was all he heard, which clattered up the dreary, silent ravines and was borne back to his ears in the countless repetitions. Again, he shouted even louder before, louder than before. Again, no whisper came back from their friends, whom he had left such a short time ago. A vague, nameless dread came over him, and he hurried onwardly, frantically, dropping the precious food in his agitation. When he turned the corner, he came in full sight of the spot where the fire had been lighted. There was still a glowing pile of wood ashes there, but had evidently not been tended since his departure. The same dead silence still reigned all around. With all his fears held changed to convictions, he hurried on. There was no living creature near the remains of the fire. Animals, man, maiden, were all were gone. It was only too clear that some sudden or terrible disaster had occurred during his absence. A disaster which had embraced them all and yet left no traces behind it. Bewildered and stunned by this blow, Jefferson Hope felt his head spin around. He had to lean upon his rival to save himself from falling. He was essentially a man of action. However, speedily recovered from his temporary inaction. Let me just repeat that. He was essentially a man of action, however, and speedily recovered from his temporary inaction. So he didn't take long to get back on the game here. Seizing a half-consumed half piece of wood from the smoldering fire, he blew it into a flame and proceeded with his help to examine the little camp. The ground was all stamped down by feet of horses, showing that a large party of mounted men had overtaken the fugitives. I don't know why we keep calling them fugitives, but they do. And the direction of the tracks proved that they, they had afterward turned back to Salt Lake City. Had they carried both of the companions with them? Jefferson Hope had almost persuaded himself that they must have done so, when his eyes fell upon an object that made every nerve in the body tingle within him. A little way in the side of the camp was a low-lying heap of reddish soil, which assertedly had not been there before. There was no mistaking it for anything but a newly dug grave. As the young hunter approached it, he perceived that a stick had been planted on it, and with a sheet of paper stuck in the cleft of the fork. The inscription on the paper was brief but to the point. John Ferrier formerly of Salt Lake City, died August 4th, 1860. The sturdy old man whom he had left so short, so short time ago was gone, and then with all his epitaph, Jefferson Hope looked wildly around to see if there was any second grave, but there was no sign of one. Lucy had been carried back by her ter terrible pursuers to fill their original destiny by becoming one of the harem of the elder's sons. As the young fellow realized the certainty of her fate, and his own powerless to prevent it, he wished that he too was lying with the old farmer in his last silent resting place. Again, however, his act of spirit shook off the weakness which sprang 
springs from despair. If there was nothing else left to him, he could at least devote his life to revenge. With great patience and perseverance, Jefferson Hope possessed also a power of sustained vindictiveness, which he may have learned from the Indians among, him who, among whom he lived. As he stood by a desolate fire, he felt that the only one thing could relieve his grief would be a thorough and complete retribution brought by his own hand upon his enemies. So he's all in for the revenge. His strong will and untiring energy should, be, should he determined, be devoted to that in one end. So now he's just living for one reason and one reason only, and that is to get revenge. With a grim white face, he retraced his steps to where they had dropped the food and having stirred up the smoldering fire, he cooked enough to last him for a few days. This he made up in a bundle. And tired as he was, he set himself to walk back through the mountains upon the track of the avenging angels. For five days he toiled, footsore and weary, through the defiles which he had already traversed on horseback. At night he flung himself down among the rocks and snatched a few hours of sleep. But before daybreak, he was always well on his way. On his sixth day, he reached the Eagle Ravine, from which they commenced their ill-fated flight. Thence he looked down upon the home of the saints. Worn and exhausted, he leaned upon his rifle and shook his gaunt hand fiercely at the silent, widespread city beneath him. As he looked at it, he observed that there were flags in some principal streets and other signs of festivity. He was still speculating as to what this might mean, and when he heard clatters of a horse's hoofs and saw a mountain man riding toward him, as he approached, he recognized him as a Mormon named Cowper, to whom he rendered services at different times. He therefore accosted him when he got up to him, with the object of finding out what happened to Lucy Ferrier's fate. I am Jefferson Hope, he said. You remember me? The Mormon looked at him with undistinguished astonishment. Indeed, it was difficult to recognize his in this tattered, unkept wanderer with ghastly white face and fierce wild eyes, the spruce young hunter of former days. Having, however, at last satisfied himself to his identity, the man's surprise changed to trepidation. You are mad to come here, he cried. It is as much as, that, as my own life is worth to be seen talking with you. There is a warrant against you from the Holy Four for assisting the farrier's getaway. I do not fear them or their warrant, Hope said earnestly. You must know something of this matter, Cowper. I conjure you by everything you hold dear to answer a few questions. We've been, always have been friends. For God's sakes, don't refuse to answer me. What is it? The Mormon asked uneasily. Be quick. The very rocks have ears and trees, or, and the trees have eyes. This guy is scared witless. What has become of Lucy Ferrier? Well, she was married yesterday to young Drebber. Hold up, man, hold up. You have no life left in you. Don't mind me, said Hope faintly, as he was white to the very lips and has sunk down on the stone against which he's been leaning. Married, you say? Married yesterday. That's, that's what those flags are for on the endowment house. There were some words between the young Drebber and young Stangerson as to which, which one was to have her. They had both been the party that followed them, and Stangerson had shot her father, which seemed to give him the best claim. But when they argued out in the council, Drebber's party was the stronger, so the prophet gave order over to him. No one, no one won't have her very long, though, for I saw death in her face yesterday. She is more like a ghost than a woman. Are you off, then? Yes, I'm off, said Jefferson Hope, who had risen from his seat. 
His face might have been chiseled out of marble, so hard and so set was was the expression, while his eyes glowed with the, the baleful light. Where are you going? Never mind, he answered, and slinging his weapon over his shoulder, strode off down the gorge, and so away into his heart of the mountains, to the haunts of the wild beasts. Among them there was none so fierce and so dangerous as himself. So he is definitely on uh, on the hunt for these two. The prediction of the Mormon was only too well fulfilled. Whether it was a terrible death of her father or the effects of the hateful marriage into which she had been forced to, poor Lucy never held up her head again, but pined away and died within a month. Aww. So they killed her too. Her heartless husband, who had married her principally for the sake of John Ferris' property, did not affect any great grief at his bereavement, but his other wives mourned over her and sat up with her the night before the burial, as is, as is the Mormon custom. They were grouped around the casket in the early hours of the morning when, to their inexpressible fear and astonishment, the door was flung open, and a savage-looking, weather-beaten man in tattered garments strode into the room. Without a glance or a word to the covering women who he walked up to the white, silent figure had once contained the pure soul of Lucy Ferrier. Stooping over her, he pressed his lips reverently to her cold forehead and then snatching up her hand, and he took the wedding ring, wedding ring from her finger. Poor guy. She shall not be buried in that, he cried with a fierce snarl, and before an alarm could be raised, sprang down the stairs and was gone. So strange and so brief was the episode that the watchers might have found it hard to believe it themselves or persuade other people of it. Have it not been for the undeniable fact that a circlet of gold which marked her as having been a bride had disappeared. For some months, Jefferson Hope lingered among the mountains, leading a strange wild life and nursing in his heart the fierce desire for vengeance which possessed him. Tales were told in the city of a weird figure which was seen prowling about the suburbs, which haunted the lonely mountain gorges. Once a bullet whistled through Stangers' window and flattened itself on the wall within a foot of him. On another occasion, as Jefferson passed under the cliff, a great boulder crashed down on him, and he only escaped a terrible death by throwing himself upon his face. The two young wormers were not long discovering the reason of those attempts upon their lives and led repeated expeditions into the mountains in hope of capturing and killing their enemy, but always without success. Then they adopted precaution of never going out alone, or after nightfall, or having their houses guarded, and of having their houses guarded. After a time, they were able to relax these measures, for nothing was either heard or seen of their opponent, and they hoped that in time, his cooled, time had cooled his vengefulness. From doing so, it had, if anything, only increased it a hundredfold. The hunter's mind was of a hard, unyielding nature, and the predominant idea of revenge had taken such complete possession of it that there was no room for any other emotion. He was, however, above all things, practical. He soon realized that even his iron constitution could not stand any incessant strain which he was putting upon it. Exposure and want of wholesome food were wearing on wearing him out. If he died like a dog among the mountains, what was to become of his revenge then? And yet such a death was sure to overtake him if he persisted. He felt that he was to play his enemy's game. So he reluctantly returned to the old Nevada mines, 
there to recruit his health and to amass money enough to allow him to pursue his object without wanting any basic wants. His intention had been to, his intention had been to be absent a year at the most, but a combination of unforeseen circumstances prevented him leaving the mines for nearly five years. At the end of that time, however, his memory of his wrongs and his cravings for revenge were quite as keen as on that memorable night when he stood by the John Ferrier's grave. So he hasn't lost one ounce of his passion to seek revenge. Disguised and under assumed name, he returned to Salt Lake City. Careless what become of his own life as long as he obtained what he knew to be justice. There he found evil tidings awaiting him. There had been a schism among the chosen people a few months before. Some of the younger members of the church having rebelled against the authority of the elders and the result had been the secession of a certain number of the malcontents who had left Utah and become Gentiles. Among these had been Dreber and Stangerson, Stangerson and no one knew whether they had gone. Rumor reported that Dreber had mass converted a large part of his property into money and that he departed the wealthy man while his companion, Stangerson, was comparatively poor. There was no clue at all, however, as to their whereabouts. Many a man, however, vindictive, would have abandoned all thought of revenge in the face of such difficulty. But Jefferson Hope? No way. Never faltered for one second. With the small confidence he possessed, eked out by such an employment as he could pick up, he traveled from town to town through the United States in quest of his enemies. Year passed into year, his black hair turned to grizzled, but still he wandered on, a human bloodhound, with his mind wholly set upon one object he had devoted his whole life to. At last his perseverance was rewarded. It was but a glance of a face in the window, but that one glance told him that Cleveland, in Ohio, possessed the men whom he was pursued of. He returned to his miserable lodging and his plan of vengeance all arranged. It chanced, however, that Drebber, looking from this window, had recognized a vagrant in the street and had read his murder in his eyes. He heard before adjusted the peace the company by Standerson, who had become his private secretary, and represented to him that they were in danger of their lives from the jealousy and hatred of, it, of an old rival. That evening, Jesper and Hope was taken into custody, and, not being able to find Cerides, was detained for some weeks. When at last he was liberated, was liberated, it was only to find out that Drebber's house was deserted and that he and his secretary had departed for Europe. Now we're getting to the where, how these two got ended up in London. Again, the adventure had been foiled, and again his concentrated hate to urge him to continue the pursuit. Funds were wanting, however, and for some time he had, had to return to work, saving every dollar for his approaching journey. At last, having collected enough to keep life in him, he departed for Europe, tracked his enemies from city to city, working his way in a menial capacity, but never overtaken the fugitives. When he reached St. Petersburg, they had departed for Paris, and when he followed them, that he learned that they had just set out for, off for Copenhagen. At the Danish capital, he was again a few days late. They had journeyed on to London, where he at last succeeded in running them to earth. As to what occurred there, we cannot do better than quote the old hunter's own account, as duly recorded in Dr. Watson's journal, to which we are already under such obligations. Wow, what a chapter that was. So, it was kind of sad to see that Lucy actually died. 
I was kind of hoping that they, they would have finally somehow got together in the end, but that ain't going to happen, obviously. So the great Mormon church struck out again, and this time, in her pursuit of uh, trying to marry the young woman, she just said, gave up on her life, lost her will to live, basically. That's what she did. Lost her will to live. And who can blame her, really? And they're thinking that Jefferson Hope would finally give up his quest to uh, seek revenge on these two fellows, but that didn't happen. At the end of the chapter here, we now have the three of them in London. Drebber, Standerson, and Jefferson Hope. And then we're geared, we're revered back to uh, Dr. Watson's journal, which is the next chapter is about his, his journal. So we got two more chapters left in the book, and I'm kind of anxious to see what's going to be uh, what's going to happen to the young fella. Well, I wouldn't say young anymore, but we'll see. It's getting to. I wonder if it's going to be a surprise ending or not. I don't know whether he gets released or gets killed. We're not sure. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. And uh, I'll do a review next week of uh, chapter 12. Which is which is a very good chapter, by the way. Sad, though. Very sad. A lot of murdering going on. And why they're calling him fugitive is beyond me. They're not fugitives. I thought a fugitive was a criminal. They're more like, uh, let's see, not refugees. Just running for their lives, really. Okay, well, like I always say before, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, excuse my little, uh, little hiccups here and there. And if you're on Spotify, please subscribe and follow and spread the word if you don't mind. And I really enjoyed your reading this morning. I hope you all have a great week and I'll see you next Sunday. Bye for now.